Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So, is it the same? Do I sound different? I, you sound the same to me. I sound the same to me. Uh, hi, it's Duanna. And it's Lainey. And welcome to Show Your Work. We can't show you, or maybe we can, uh, the way that we are working today. Uh, it is more or less business as usual for you, Lainey. I'm in my usual chair. You, however, are uh, not in a chair at all. No, I am happily ensconced on the floor on a yoga mat because I did something to my back and realized I could not spend the entire duration of the podcast sitting in a chair. Uh, my posture is not the best at the best of times. So I've decided to lie on the floor. Uh, Engineer Yasik has rigged me up a microphone <laughs> setup here. Uh, I might never go back. I'm kind of thrilled. So we're being super professional by working during an injury. Yeah. And maybe not professional in that one of the people who's working is lying down. Uh, sure. I would say this shows my, you know, my dedication, perseverance and yes, exactly. Uh, but yes, another way of looking at it is I am literally lying down on the job. She does seem to think that her voice sounds better like this though. So you all have to tell us, does Duanna's voice sound better when she is lying down? Please no references to Gwyneth Paltrow. I would appreciate it. Okay, we should just jump right in because this is the one story that people have been asking about and that most people are talking about. And of course, it's because the story involves probably one of the top three most famous women in the world, in the industry, and that's Angelina Jolie. Well, I would go one step further and say that talking about Angelina Jolie and this interview that she gave uh, to Vanity Fair is the reason we have this podcast, right? When we talked about the breakup almost a year ago now, uh, we did what was then a one-off podcast and sort of developed what would become Show Your Work. Yeah, Angelina Jolie, post-breakup, post, I call it World War Branch, um, was the beta of Show Your Work. And in fact, we talked about what the first interview would be. Uh, but I think at the time we were talking about like a televised interview, uh, which is still to come. I don't think we were thinking about uh, a war of the print interviews. Yeah, we we definitely were predicting who she would sit down with. Diane Sawyer and Curry, who used to be her favorite, what form it would take. And so we didn't actually talk about which magazine she would use. Um, and of course, we knew that we we knew that there was going to be an angle taken. But we couldn't, I don't think we predicted that there would be a tit-for-tat magazine situation where he did GQ style and she went to Vanity Fair. No, and maybe that was naive on our part to think that they would allow themselves to be uh, in front of live cameras or in front of cameras at all. 
it maybe that was a bit silly because of course in print we know how he came off we we talked about it a few weeks ago make Brad Pitt great again right uh and so now there's this interview uh which i assume you've all read and notated in detail and uh yeah what did you think well in the post that i wrote about it last week i assessed it on the basis of gossip tit for tat yeah, right course, yeah um the nuggets she drops the detail she gives that seemed unprompted about the kids having to be brave. Um, yeah, which was a bit, I don't know what. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the kids having to be brave. And then a lot of it was about the film that she's promoting, First They Killed My Father, which is predicted to be screened at Telluride and then definitely will be coming to Toronto for TIFF. Um, so yeah, I mean, I only address the gossipy nuggets since then the gossipy nuggets are not the headlines. The headlines are the revelation in the piece that she supposedly manipulated young children in order to, during the audition process, especially for first they killed my father, um, and specifically young children who are growing up in the aftermath and shadow of war. So, yeah, so I guess the idea is that, of course, they wanted this to be authentically Cambodian, right? There's a line in the article that says uh, that had the Cambodian people not wanted this movie to happen, it wouldn't have happened, right? Yes. Which is a bit, uh, how many people did they poll, do we think, exactly? Right. Like, how many of them got to weigh in? Uh, and, of course, there's the not insignificant fact of Maddox, uh, Maddox Jolie Pitt, uh, her eldest son, who is essentially, uh, I don't want to say standing in for all Cambodians, but who is definitely being given an outsized voice on this project relative to most first-time 15-year-old producers. Yes? Correct. 15 or 16? I think you're right on both counts because his birthday is August 5. He's ah. currently 15, so he will be 16 next week. Maddox is a Leo. Happy birthday, Maddox. Yeah, and I think that what she thought she was doing in this interview was going out of her way. I think what she thought she was doing in this interview was basically saying, look at all the things that we did to make sure the Cambodian people were properly represented and cared for and nurtured, and we went above and beyond. But what happened was there was this one paragraph in the piece that describes the audition process and, quote, a game that was played. Specifically the audition process for, uh, I guess, the youngest actor, the star, the child star of the movie. Right. And it's described as a game in which, allegedly, it sounds like at least when you read the Vanity Fair piece, that her feelings were manipulated and she was made to feel like money was being taken from her. She was emotionally fucked with. Okay, I want to stop you there because uh, basically what's described and what's now being leveled at Angelina Jolie is that that's, you know, it's really cruel to have done this, to have told uh, child actors or child stars that there could be money coming to their family and what would they have done with the money and then having the money taken away and seeing what the emotional response would be. That's right. And he, even even child actors would be a stretch to, yeah. to sort of describe these kids that way. Some may have had some very little acting experience, but for the most part, the idea that we're getting here is that these were just regular civilians brought in to audition. So 
We're recording this on Sunday, and this morning, or this morning, I read the headline uh, that you know, Angelina had responded to criticisms that she was manipulating children in this way. And of course, you know, the statement was not that exciting. Of course, she said, uh, we would never, and this was misrepresented, and I resent that it was taken this way. True? Yes. So she released a statement to Huffington Post, um, and she said that Vanity Fair had taken the description of the casting process out of context uh, she says, quote, every measure was taken to ensure the safety, comfort, and well-being of the children on the film, starting from the auditions through the production to the present. Um, she said that I am upset that a pretend exercise in improvisation from an actual scene in the film has been written about as if it was a real scenario. The, suge the suggestion that real money was taken from a child during an audition is false and upsetting, I would be outraged myself if this had happened. So basically she's saying that the whole situation has been misrepresented, that it was as portrayed according to script, that they were, you know, shooting as many auditions go, right? You take a scene from yeah. the story the you, and, and the, the, all the participants were told that this was a scene from the story, that they would be acting it out. And, um, and there were caregivers on standby to help with everybody. So... Look, it, the reaction is going to be the reaction. I'm not sure this is going to change anybody's mind who was ready to shove, you know, set her on fire last week. But here's my problem before we ever get there. I read it before I ever knew there was going to be a clapback controversy the way she portrays it in her, in her statement. I don't feel like I'm an Angelina apologist, but I assumed that it was an improv exercise. It seemed clear to me in the Vanity Fair article. And in fact, uh, you know, the way it's written, I didn't feel, you know, they talk about the, the ultimately the girl who won the part bursting into tears at the end and saying that she would uh, have given the money to her grandfather, I think. And it's sad. And I remember reading and going, oh, this feels a little icky, but I didn't think it wasn't – I didn't think they were misleading these child actors. Did I read it wrong? Did I give it too much credit? Well, I – when I read it, I had the same reaction as you, like the icky factor. That said, I don't know that any laws were broken because prior to that section in the article, great care was taken once again to talk about how there were authorities involved, how there were psychologists and caregivers on set, how um, – Every measure was taken to make sure that the Cambodian people were respected. So I wonder if it actually comes down to, as you just relayed, her description of the young girl's emotion and reaction during that scene in Angelina's words. I'll read it right now. Srey Mok, the girl ultimately chosen for the part, was the only child that stared at the money for a very, very long time, Jolie says. When she was forced to give it back, she became overwhelmed with emotion. All these different things came flooding back. Jolie then tears up. When she was asked later what the money was for, she said her grandfather had died and they didn't have enough money for a nice funeral. So <laughs> these are her words. Like she almost did too good of a job. Do you know what I mean? Describing the ability of this girl to tap into her emotions. And I think that's what punches you in the gut. 
Yeah, absolutely. You're right. It's great storytelling, which makes it great writing uh, because they talk about Angelina tearing up as she tells the story. But I'm going to be honest, it sounds like an improv exercise. Like it sounds like everything that you're expected to do in grade 11 drama, uh, you know, to to come up with a scenario that's plausible and then react when somebody says that they're taking the money back that you desperately needed or similar. Am I super callous or just super jaded about auditions? Well, let me, if, you, if you're going to take the position, arguably, ostensibly, of the Angelina Defender, let me try to take the position of the people who are so upset, including some human rights organizations who've released statements saying this is cruel, especially coming from somebody who works for the UN on behalf of refugees. Right. That she should have known better. So on the one hand, what you're saying is, this is what happens when you film a movie. We I'm not audition. saying you mislead people or manipulate them, although that can and does happen, uh, usually more on set. You hear stories of directors saying terrible things to people in order to get reactions out of them. Even we, the last Tango in Paris thing, right? Right, yeah. yes. Or we talked about Woody Allen, who would uh, pass horrible notes uh, to kind of motivate or demotivate his actresses, that kind of thing. So that does happen, but it doesn't sound like what this is. This sounds like an improvisation exercise, and it sounds as though the kids involved are aware that it's pretend, but because they're such good pretenders, which ultimately is what gets them the job, they're so into it that they tear up, which, in a word, is acting, right? My interest here is on a work level – when you, being someone like Angelina Jolie, decide to tell these particular stories that are already controversial to begin with, Khmer Rouge, Cambodia, that history, the lingering trauma of an entire people, and you are a white woman and you go and tell these stories, immediately, whether or not this quote comes out and this profile piece comes out, already you're walking into, pardon the language, a minefield. Yep. So that is where she's choosing to direct her work right now. And so none of these conversations, whether we're talking about Sudan or whether we're talking about Syria, whether we're talking about Cambodia, in any of the geographical zones that are so fraught with historical controversy, I don't think anybody comes out in a way that escapes criticism. So she, in her work, is already walking into that, number one. I'm not sure that there was any way she was going to make this film without having some people be upset about it. I, I do believe that there was also some controversy about In the Land of Blood and Honey. Yes, I agree with that. Or I agree to remembering that. Right. Um, and I don't know that it reached the scale of this particular controversy. If, you know, we, and we don't want to be glib and just slap it with controversy and, and make that the adequate word, but for lack of, I don't know, time that we want to spend in the thesaurus right now, um, I don't know that the Land of Blood, blood and Honey, uh, the debate about that equals the scale of this one. And yet, she does choose to go into these areas and tell these historical stories. Ugh, and I, I don't know that anyone is ever going to be perfect. No, for sure. So just to clarify, was that you taking the anti-Angelina uh, point? 
I'm no, I think that probably <laughs> listen, the listener out there is going to interpret that the way they are. We have been accused of being too pro Angelina Jolie, Lainey Gossip, and I all put that right on the table. There are regular readers who email us all the time. Of course, you're going to defend her. Of course, you're going to hate Brad Pitt, this and that and the other. So I'm sure those people will interpret this as a pro Angelina stance. And there are others who are sympathetic to Angelina who might say, yeah, this is this the risk when your work focuses in these stories? Well, I'll say this, uh, which is not something I thought I was going to say. Uh, you know, I'm all for thinking, well, this is auditions are auditions. And especially with children, you need to see what they can do and be able to communicate that this is the emotion that we're going to want to see in the film and that kind of thing. But then as I was thinking about that and listening to you speak, I wondered if, and I don't know this for a fact, but I wondered if that's, I mean, is that a reaction and the kind of performance that we need for a successful Western movie? Uh, a movie that is seen through a Hollywood lens? Like maybe if, you know, uh, as you say, like nobody comes out sort of unscarred by the events that have transpired. Uh, and it goes without saying that everybody sort of has some trauma. But suppose there were performers who didn't, you know, openly weep or didn't portray it in that way. Maybe that's entirely culturally appropriate. And is that a bit of a blind spot to, you know, to want the tears and the music swelling that signifies an important moment in Hollywood cinema as opposed to what might otherwise happen? So in the Vanity Fair piece, Up and Down, we hear from Luong Ong, mm -hmm. who wrote the book, First They Killed My Father, who is one of Angelina's very good friends, who yeah. consulted on the film, this, that, and the other, who basically portrays Angelina as the most respectful of the Cambodian people. And what you're supposed to take away from that is if Angelina had stepped out of line, if she had gone offside, it would be like... Ung would be the first person to be like, yo. Yeah, that's you know, not, yes. That's not okay, you suck. Now, in this Huffington Post piece, um, where Angelina Jolie refutes these claims from Vanity Fair, or at least the way it was portrayed in Vanity Fair, and um, t says that, you know, nobody was hurt, um, a producer, Rithi Pan, who is Cambodian and who uh, is a producer on the film, also comes to her defense and says, hey, um, this has been a huge misunderstanding. Great care was taken with the children, not only during auditions, but throughout the entirety of the film's making. Uh, because the memories of the genocide are so raw and many Cambodians still have difficulty speaking about their experiences, a team of doctors and therapists work with us on set every day, so anyone from the cast or crew who wanted to talk could do so. So you've got Ung and you've got Rithi Pan, who are kind of stepping forward to defend Angelina Jolie. And I'm asking you, yeah, is, is it the equivalent of I have black friends? No, I don't think so. Uh, and I'll, uh, you know, it's hard to say. What I thought you were going to say is, is it the same as Johnny Depp's, you know, people on his payroll saying, no, Johnny Depp would never. Sure, that too. Uh, and in that regard, it may be. Because the fact that these women who have done important work are being quoted in Vulture or the Huffington Post or so forth is because they're associated with Angelina Jolie. 
arguably the, you know, the biggest star in the world. Um, so there is a bite the hand that feeds you kind of situation here. And no doubt if there were sort of things being, if there were things transpiring that were not okay and they weren't willing to kind of co-sign, you imagine that there would be some who would, right? Like this is a failing on our part. We are not internationally literate. And so you you don't really know when uh, a known associate of Angelina Jolie's is like, no, no, this is legit. We don't know if they are experts in their field. We don't know if they are, you know, known to give quotes to people who need them or if they are exacting people who had to be earned the respect of to mangle a sentence, right? So we don't know. We can only trust. But it seems as though this may be one of those situations. And again, I don't presume to put myself uh, in the shoes of the Cambodian people about whom this movie is supposed to be. But you also think, is this a situation where you don't want perfect to be the enemy of good? Where if she were not telling this story, would the story be told? If Angelina Jolie were not choosing to tell this story, would this story be on the minds of of millions of North Americans and Europeans who might otherwise never think about it? Well, and I guess the next question then is, we are just three weeks away at this point from Angelina taking this film to two film festivals. So it hasn't been confirmed yet and Telluride never releases their slate, but Given that Tiff has uh, called First They Killed My Father a Canadian premiere, ah, it means that uh, the North American premiere belongs to somebody else. Right. It already premiered internationally in Cambodia a few months ago, so that's why everybody is assuming, and it is probably a lockdown, like, slam-dunk assumption, she's going to take it to Telluride, and then she's going to bring it to Toronto for Tiff. So she's traveling with the film in support of it amidst all this controversy. So does she confront it head on? She's released this statement. Some people are going to believe her and be like, okay, nothing to see here. Others are still going to hang on to the fact that it was gross or their fact, however they want to perceive it, that it was gross. Um, But now she's got to put a face to it and go to Telluride, which traditionally is a pretty open festival in that when you're in the Q&A, you can ask your questions. But here's the other thing. Like, was there controversy before this? Because it seems, too, that because of the sensitive subject matter of the film, she's maybe more generous with critics than she would otherwise be. Because I can see a scenario where if this was a movie, I don't know, written about uh, British evacuees during the Second World War, that she would be like, it was an audition technique. Get over yourself. Uh, so even the the statement and the sort of clarity seems gentler than it might otherwise be. Was there controversy before this? And that's why she's sort of explaining so much? No, I don't think that anyone, and that has to do with the fact that, listen, North American media and the media who have come for her aren't paying attention to this movie. They're not paying attention to that part of the world. The only reason, to go back to your point, they're paying attention is because it's Angelina Jolie. Right. So this interview comes out in Vanity Fair, that paragraph becomes a thing, and that's where the controversy comes about. And I guess 
the cynical way of looking at it is had that paragraph not been included, had it been, you know, trimmed in copy editing or whatever, there is a faction that might say, well, people who wanted to be grumpy at her for doing this movie would have been grumpy at her anyway. But I wonder if it does represent a little bit of a streak. So I mentioned in the land of blended honey, and there was some controversy around that previous to that. um, And it's funny because maybe Twitter outrage or Twitter um, wasn't as powerful back in 2007, but remember she played Marianne Pearl in A Mighty Heart? Uh, What I actually (laughs) thought you were going to say was, remember she played Marianne Pearl in A Terrible Wig? Uh, And I don't mean to make light of the Daniel Pearl story, but yeah, I do remember that. And yeah, there were a lot of eyebrows raised, right? A lot of eyebrows raised because that's a That's a bold choice to make. Yes. And again, we have a situation there where she's friends with Marianne Pearl. In fact, Marianne Pearl is probably one of her closest friends. They've been hanging out for a long time. But you just said that uh, about the author of First They Killed My Father. No, I'm asking you about the trend. This is a streak, right? So Marianne Pearl, like the... The implied blowover in that situation was, well, I mean, she had Marianne Pearl's blessing, so who are we to dot, dot, dot. Right. Well, she has Ung's blessing, so who are we to dot, dot, dot on First They Killed My Father. Right. So is, you have to just be friends with these people? <laughs> on the one hand, yeah, I do think that probably is the case. And from a, both a, a sort of cynical and not cynical point of view, right? Which is to say, from the cynical point of view... That means she probably optioned their life rights for a lot of money. So, you know, there's a a vested interest in them being okay with it. And from the not cynical point of view, if you are really good friends with her, she's going to let you look at the script or a cut and say, no, I think this is too weird or too much. Let me bring gossip back into this. Please. So, A Mighty Heart, 2007. Yep. In the Land of Blood and Honey was filmed and released around the same time well, she was still with Brad Pitt. So this is okay. the first time that she's really getting some heat without being half of a supernova mega couple. Sure, And yeah. married to, you know, America's favorite hunk who we always look to forgive. And the gossip surrounding that and the glamour around their family, they were always able to withstand and ride over their whatever scandals because they were just so interesting together. So now she's on her own and this is being directed at her. So from a gossip perspective, does she weather it as, quote, easily as the others? Well, and to take it one step further, and again, I feel like this is something that I, you know, have clarified under your tutelage. Make no mistake, she is talking about the gossip-worthy stuff and giving the quotes in the magazine about uh, the children, etc., in order to promote the movie, right? You're getting the gossip because she knows that you're interested in order to promote the movie. This is the price that she pays. I will give the interview that I don't really want to give post-divorce in order to talk about this film. So is it going to be easier on her? I don't know. I it, When we talk like that, it makes me feel as though people have been poised to want to take her down for years and abstained because of Brad Pitt, which I guess brings us back to the Angelina apologist 
point of view, but it feels really yucky to me, to to use a real adult term, uh, that people have been poised to to come for her and they're like, good, now that the blonde's out of the way, we can really sink our teeth into this bitch. Like that's a, it's a weird feeling. And then also some of the points that you raise about the topics that she chooses to cover and, and make her films about, those are weird too. And both can be true. It can feel strange from a feminist point of view that people seem really ready to take her down and maybe her choice of film topics is a bit uh, advantageous for her, to use a real generous term. Is she the white savior? I don't know. I guess the question is, what is she saving? And again, not to beat a dead horse, but to talk about perfect being the enemy of good, are these films that we should be seeing? Are these things that we should know about? Uh, If she were you know, if she were giving the money to the most uh, decorated Cambodian filmmakers to make this film kind of without her and being a silent partner, would it get any attention? Like, at what point is your altruism not as effective as doing something that happens to also be self-serving? Are you going to see the film? Oh, yeah. Are you? Yes. Yeah. Having said that, there's one extra gossip point that I thought was really interesting. We had a note from a reader who said uh, that she wishes Angelina would stop trying to be normal or trying to pretend she wants to be normal. And I thought it was really interesting that, uh, you know, in the last paragraph of the article that after saying, oh, my life is about my kids, she's talking about how she's champing at the bit uh, trying to go to Africa. I've been trying for nine months to be really good at just being a homemaker. And now her kid said, let's never be normal. Knox says, who wants to be normal? We're not normal. Let's never be normal. Thank you. Yes, we're not normal. Let's embrace being not normal. And that in itself is a bit, maybe not white savory, but it's a bit, uh, it's a bit of an excuse to oneself, right? Well, I don't make pedestrian films because I'm so other and I'm so concerned with the world that I could never make Hollywood films. And, you know, I'm so unusual, even in Hollywood, even in this rarefied place, I'm such a rare bird that I can't possibly do typical things. And so whatever missteps she makes in service of these, you know, consciousness-raising uh, arguably white savior films, it's because she's just so special. So, you know, she's doing a fair bit of the work there to excuse herself. Fair? Fair. Okay, so from Angelina, it's actually a natural segue to our next topic on the lineup, um, which has to do with, you know, we were talking about what it's like for child actors, audition processes, right? simulating experiences, the concept of child acting to begin with. And one of the children who is no longer a child, who is now, uh, I don't know, borderline adult star, Justin Bieber has been one of the top celebrities making the biggest headlines lately. Of course, he's canceled the last 14 days of his tour. There have been all kinds of rumors about why he canceled. Exhaustion seems to come up a lot. Then there's, in, then there's his involvement with uh, Hillsong Church. Some 
People are speculating that he's been drawn in by G.O.D., that uh, he wants to start his own ministry, that Carl Lentz, the pastor of Hillsong Church, with whom he has a very close relationship, um, who, if you haven't read Tavi Agner's piece on Hillsong and Carl Lentz in GQ, I think it was a couple of years ago, you have to. It was quite sympathetic and also critical, but without being mean. She's a great writer. Anyway, so, uh, you know, we have, we have been talking about Justin for years, about the effect his fame has had on him and other people like him. The list is long, right? Lindsay Lohan, Shia LaBeouf, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we got this amazing email, which we want to thank you because your messages often help shape our discussions. And this comes from Eshna. And Eshna was reading about Justin Bieber and was wondering about Lynn Harless. Who? Um, Right. So Lynn Harless is Justin Timberlake's mom. And Eshna says, I think Lynn is worth exploring on Show Your Work. JT may be full of himself, but he did manage to turn his childhood stardom into a personal success and was managed well to avoid all the typical pitfalls like burnouts, financial issues, and controversial tabloid stories in his early days. This is 100% thanks to his mom, who was also his manager. My question, what makes a momager more like Lynn Harless and less Dina Lowen? Is there room in the industry to recognize what a difficult job it is to manage the well-being of a child star? And can we discuss and celebrate those who've done it successfully to hopefully avoid repeating the mistakes with future generations of young celebrities? So one of your favorite topics, Duanna, has always been momagers. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, you know, the whole kind of world of of stardom before 18, if you will. Uh, So remember Scholastic Book Orders? Yes. Obviously, right? Uh, I One of my favorite books that I remember ordering was called So You Want to Be a Star. I think the subtitle was A Kid's Guide to Making It in Hollywood. I don't know about that, but I do know that the author was Randy Reisfeld. Uh, and I remember large sections of that book by heart, not least because I was reading the sections to my parents in an effort to get them to move me to Los Angeles so that I could be a child star. Spoiler, did not happen. Did not get as far as saying, we'll talk about it over dinner. They flat out laughed at me, which of course I have said was the best thing they could have done. But in that book, I was introduced to the concept of parents who are, quote, supportive of their kids' dreams. Parents who most often give up a job and move to LA or New York or Orlando or all of the above in order to further their kids' dream. And so uh, almost all of the people you list and countless, countless more uh, are here because of of supportive parents slash manager parents. And we'll get into in a minute what that means, the difference between being just a supportive driver and being, you know, a momager. Uh, But I think it's really interesting to note that most of the people you've ever heard of are being supported by a single parent. Uh, That is one parent who either is unmarried or who divorces because the stresses of supporting this one kid's bid for stardom are too much. Uh, And then they wind up directing their kid's career. 
So to go back to what Eshna wants to know, you've had some experience with this. You've seen it. When you're in an audition room and you are screening and you're looking at headshots and they come in, can you almost to this point pinpoint the ones who are supporters and the ones who are momager, dadagers? No. And here's why. Uh, No kid who is, you know, supported by a real anxious parent who really wants their kid to make it is going to make it without the talent, right? Like we can talk until we're blue in the face about Justin versus Justin or Brittany versus, I don't know, Miley or whomever, but you have to have the raw goods and no production is going to hire anybody, no matter how pushy the parents, if they don't have the raw goods. So you have to have it but there are millions of kids who have the raw goods who never make it, right? So put it this way. Having a parent who really wants it is not going to make it happen for you if you don't have the talent, but lots of kids whose parents don't really want it don't make it. You have to have both. Does that make sense? Yep. So I guess the question is, you know, when does somebody become a momager? And the answer is... uh instantly or never, because nobody really knows how to do this business. There aren't really rules. You can't read books and learn how to do this. The rules are changing all the time. Suppose, you know, you're presented with a contract on what to do with your kid's YouTube show that somebody wants to buy and license. There's nothing written about that because the medium is five minutes old. And so as a parent, you look at things and go, Maybe I can figure this out. Obviously, I can act in my kid's best interest. This is the story with Catherine Heigl's mother, right, who was a stay-at-home mom who taught herself the business in order to support her daughter, Catherine Heigl. So it's one of these weird situations where a, you know, a relative neophyte is suddenly an expert in, in the world of their child's career because it's their child's career. Or there's the handover situation, right? Where in Justin Bieber's example, for example, um, his parents basically handed him over, his mom really, handed him over to Scooter Braun. So Scooter Braun has always been described as a father figure. What's interesting now is that it feels like Scooter Braun and Justin's relationship has, well, I mean, some people are speculating that it has changed and Justin's found another father figure in the form of this pastor, Carl Lentz of Hillsong Church. So I guess those are the two ways of doing it. Or are there more? Well, I mean, yeah, I guess so. You know, you hope on some level that people take that much interest in your child, right? And usually they don't just take that much interest in your child. Usually it's about a product. Uh, So Scooter Braun is a, you know, a music manager, right? He was able to see a way to make Justin Bieber into a musical product. uh, And we'll get there in terms of what that looked like in a bit. Uh, In Britney's early stories, uh, a name called Larry Rudolph, who was a family lawyer, came up a lot. And he was able to see how to, I think he was around even when Britney was going to be, you know, a Broadway star, that kind of thing. And he's still around. And he's still around. Yeah. I think he was uh, instrumental in the… Comeback and the recovery and, and the extricating her from the Sam Lefties of the world, yeah. right? Uh, so, 
you know, there are those people, as you say, who are who are there or who are handed over, as you say, but they're often with their eye to a product. You know, when you talk about, for example, Lou Pearlman comes up a lot. Mm-hmm. NSYNC. But, yeah, sure. And and Backstreet before them and uh, B44, just to give a complete, uh, maybe O-Town? <laughs> um, but, you know, he's about the, pro- in that case, NSYNC is the product, right? They are a product and they are a, uh, a collection of people who together are are in sync and he cares more about that band than he does about any individual member. Like the joke was about New Edition, right? That they would just always get new members. They weren't Lou Pearlman's, but I guess that just shows the idea that the product is more important than the individuals. The argument, I guess, is if you want people who are going to care about your child, i.e. Justin Timberlake, as opposed to NSYNC and NSYNC's best interest, then you have to be the one who is not worried about what's best for the band, but best for your kid, which brings us back to enter momagers. That's right. And momagers, we're going to, you know, according to Eshna's email, address the Lynn Harless. So why was, I mean, I think that you and I are pretty much aligned in, in the why of it. But why, for example, do we view Lynn differently than we view Dina Lowen? Okay, so I guess there's two questions there. There's the why, which is easy to answer. And there's the what mistakes were made. Uh, We've talked before on this show about how we think mistakes are important, how failure is part of succeeding. Uh, And so I think it can be very instrumental in looking at which mistakes were made. So let's look at Justin Timberlake's career for a second. Let's say for the sake of argument that he is talented at eight or nine or whatever, and that Lynn is ready to make this happen for her son by that point, give or take. Yes? Yep. So then he, his first big mainstream success is on the Mickey Mouse Club. This is perfect. The Mickey Mouse Club is a group situation. I think at various times they had 25 cast members. So the pressure's not all on him. It does a shitload of episodes so he can learn and train and make mistakes and do stupid things without the attention being all on him. And he does that for three or four years. Then you wait around for the next thing. Okay. So the next thing, and look, we'll just assume that Justin Timberlake is very lucky and or talented to have all these things come his way at more or less the right times. Sorry. So then we have NSYNC. And now it's still a group situation. It still doesn't rise or fall only on him. But now he gets the opportunity to train as the lead, to train as a star, and to eke his way closer to being somebody who, you know, is dealing with all the attention. So I'll tell a story, uh, Early, early in my career, when I was a real baby producer, I was producing an interview with NSYNC and was told at the last minute that Justin Timberlake would not be showing up, that the other four guys would do the interview. Uh, It is one of my points of pride that I knew if I don't come back with an interview with Justin, I'm going to be fired because he's the star. And so I held out and said, no, we need to have him. And he showed up and did the interview. But as much as I'm proud of me and it was the right thing for me to do, he's also testing what will happen 
if I don't go to an interview, NSYNC has still done an interview with an outlet. So he's kind of weighing the costs of what he can do as a person and reserving his energy for various opportunities. And then he moves into his solo career and Saturday Night Live and whatever else. Yes? Yep. Compare and contrast with Justin Bieber. Uh, As you point out, he is handed over to a manager really young. And I think uh, in large part, Scooter Braun is acknowledged to have had Justin Bieber's best interests in mind, uh, at least in principle. Yes? Uh, You know, there's a a quote that you and I love that I believe is from Rolling Stone uh, about how when his mother was, was praying about whether or not Scooter Braun was the guy, she was taking into account uh, his religion. I believe the quote is her saying. Like she had reservations about the fact that he was Jewish. Right. God, are you really (laughs) sending this Jewish man to, to manage Justin's career? Yes. But Justin Bieber happens, I think, via what? Never Say Never? Is that the first thing that happens? Oh, Honestly, I'm not a scholar, but let's say yes. I don't actually think it no, was. No, it was I Baby. Yeah. It was so Baby. Justin Bieber uh, releases Baby. He's 14 years old. I remember this because I remember one day walking into my local drugstore and there was a giant cutout of a teenager with this stupid hair. And I'm like, who is this? What is this? What is this about? And of course, Baby is on it. And it was corresponding to the baby perfume. Uh, And that basically says it all in a nutshell. The kid's first hit record, which falls all on his shoulders, is followed by as much marketing as humanly possible. By perfumes, by endorsements I can't know about, by bajillions of appearances, all before he knows how he feels or thinks about anything. Uh, basically, if you believe that somebody has only so many fans that they can meet or hugs they can give before the expire, uh, Justin Bieber might have used all of his up before he was 17 and a half. Without having to share it with four other people. Exactly. Without having four other people to share the weight. Or 22 other people on the Mickey Mouse Club. Exactly. Yes. And to say to people, like, Timberlake was a punk when he didn't show up for my interview, but if they had said, you know what? Timberlake has food poisoning, he's dying in bed, then fair enough, four other people are there to do his press duties. If Justin Bieber has food poisoning, either he disappoints entire legions of people or he drags his ass out of bed anyway, does it anyway, and then suffers the consequence in a week or a month when he's run down and exhausted. And you know why I like those two examples, the Mickey Mouse Club and Justin Timberlake's experience in NSYNC is... It goes back to a skill that you and I love, but, um, you know, it has been met with resistance, and that is competition. Yeah. So you're on the Mickey Mouse Club, and Ryan Gosling is also on there. Yes. And Christina Aguilera, and Britney Spears. So you are thrown into a situation where you're not told on a daily basis you're the best. You're told on a daily basis that 20 other kids are here, and they're the best too. So how are you going to shine? I would be remiss if I did not also point out that Carrie Russell and J.C. Chazé were on the Mickey there Mouse Club at the same time. And speaking of J.C., then you form a group with J.C., and at the beginning, it was J.T. and J.C. as the two leads. 
I think Kathleen would fight us for saying that JT was the lead. Uh, I think she was pretty avowedly JC. Well, a lot of people were avowedly JC. I was JC. I was going to say, you have your hand earnestly pressed to your chest right now. I was JC. So you have in that situation three backups and two leads who, even though it was probably not spoken, the undercurrent there was, hey, which one of you two is going to make it? That is a natural competition, and it fosters a survival skill and an ingenuity that you just don't get when you're pushed out immediately as a solo artist. It didn't happen for Britney. It didn't happen for JB. But let's go to the hallmark of this example, Beyonce. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Now, Beyonce was never set up as nothing but the middle one. Like there was, let's, we don't want to say that there was any competition and any question that Michelle or Kelly or the ones that we can't remember their names. Ah, but there was. (laughs) Ah, but there was. Oh, yeah. Please make my point then. So here's the deal. Any excuse I have to talk about the history of Beyonce, I will take. So long before Destiny's Child or any of their various names, and the names you were looking for, uh, uh, Latoya and Latavia, uh, but long before that, the earliest version of the band was called Girls' Time. Uh, And Beyonce was considered a good singer, but not somebody who had the stage presence and voice and sort of uh, technique as uh, another... Uh, another young girl named Ashley, who arguably was meant to be the lead of the group, had the charisma and the talent and the thing. I think what happened was twofold. On the one hand, uh, and again, this is a version of Momager, Beyonce had a beautician and hairstylist for a mother. So she was always able to take advantage of her significant beauty. So she emerged as looking like a lead. And by every single account, she was the hardest working. By every account, she was the one rehearsing the longest, who never got tired, who always wanted to rehearse. So yes, in fact, there was competition for Beyonce. And obviously, the stories that are told now, not unlike the Angelina stories, You can never really know the truth of them because, uh, as we know, Parkwood Entertainment uh, controls a large faction of people who talk about Beyonce. But yeah, there was competition there. Well, and there's no competition or there was no competition for Justin and for Britney. And so the competition really becomes yourself. And also, you know, those people, as much as they are competition... They're also encouragement. They're also your only people who can understand what you're going through, right? Understanding what you're going through is key there because I don't know how profoundly I can say this, but when you're 16 and you're competing against yourself and you're encouraging yourself too, that you have to do those both jobs and you have to be Justin and you have to be Brittany, the toll it takes on somebody is 
I mean, it's it can be, as we've seen, devastating. Now, I will say, I don't want to like lose this point. It's petty. And um, I'm sure Lynn Harless did a great job and was astute in selecting those two launch pads, the Mickey Mouse Club and NSYNC, uh, you know, supporting Justin through that. But of course, we all know that the ultimate surge of Justin Timberlake ahead of JC was Britney. Oh, that's L- interesting. Like, and sorry, but Lynn Harless didn't have anything to do with that. Or maybe she did. Maybe that's the astuteness. Maybe that's the Kris Jenner in Lynn Harless. Well, and really to complicate matters, then we also have to tip a hat to Lynn Spears, who was neck and neck with Lynn Harless in terms of what she would do for her girl. And Britney is a bit of a punchline now, but as I say, Britney was, uh, you know, on Broadway. Britney was rearing up the charts. She had just as much success as he did, and a lot of that- More, more. Oh, much more. Earlier, anyway. Yeah. Uh, I mean, she had as much success. Whether or not she had or has as much talent is one of the things that gets debated. But- um, you have to think that, yeah, that sort of, oh, they're dating, that tacitly was endorsed by both Lynn's, which is a bit weird. Uh, you know, but this is one of those things. Remember when Selena Gomez and Justin Bieber were dating and they were like 17 and 15 and they'd be vacationing on some tropical island? You'd be like, how is that? Well, that happens because your momagers agree to fly you to vacation at the same place, you know? That kind of thing is endorsement in a way that, yes, agrees that this is good for both of them. Maybe they even know the paparazzi's being called. I don't know. But when you say, are they are they a part of that as well? I'd say they're not, not a part of it for sure. No. And again, so to go back to Eshna's question, what makes a good momager, all those things, plus you need a little dash of Kris Jenner. Yeah, you definitely need a little dash of not just wanting to protect your child, but wanting to take advantage of things. And that's the difference between uh, these people whose names we know, and let's include both Matthew Knowles and Tina Lawson, formerly Knowles here, because they were doing whatever it took to capitalize on their daughter's talents. Uh, But that's what separates them from the millions of successful child stars who, you know, who don't have supernova careers, uh, who did well, who were supported by moms, but who are not superstars as a result. And I don't want to skip over this one point. You alluded to it um, about what it takes to be successful and that mysterious ingredient. In many of the cases for those who become successful and then crash, The success of the child has everything to do with the success of the family. Some of the people you mentioned, Tina, Tina had her own career. She had her own business. Yep. Um, The family would have eaten if Beyonce and Girls Time and then Destiny's Child did not become a thing. Which is to say, to paraphrase you, they were not relying on her becoming a star in order to make the mortgage. That's right. In Justin Bieber's case... We have heard time and again, um, Patty was a single mom. Right. Patty was in and out living with her parents. Right. Uh, The dad, Jeremy, was in trouble with the law. Right. Which is the kindest way to put it. Right. 
Um, so you have a different setup right there. I believe Lynn Harless had a relatively stable life as well, had remarried, um, and there was none of the pressure to really, really deliver so that the bills could be paid. But that pressure exists. Uh, and, you know, we don't always know where that pressure is. Uh, we don't always know where that pressure is in the current generation. You often hear about it later. You often hear, well, yeah, I had my mom on the payroll as my manager so that she could pay our mortgage. Uh, I had my mom on the payroll and so I was her boss and that was super weird, you know. Uh, or uh, this is also phenomenally, shockingly expensive. The tragic example that I have talked about openly on Laney Gossip is Millie Bobby Brown, uh, who has talked in interviews about how her entire family was moving from England, traveling constantly in support of her career, and by all accounts, kind of hand to mouth, desperate for her to make it uh, because she wasn't getting work. Some of that is reading between the lines, but not a lot. When this becomes about the money, and it takes a phenomenal amount of money to get started uh, if you don't happen to live in Los Angeles, then yeah, there can be enormous, enormous shocking pressure. And the tragedy can often take different shapes. I mean, I'm not calling Justin Bieber a tragedy, and I'm certainly not calling Britney a tragedy, but the dark places can take different forms. So we are talking about the people who will always be megastars. Justin and Brittany, I mean, Justin, I know, is only 22, but Justin's never not going to be famous. And regardless of what happens with Hillsong and whether or not he starts a ministry, if he does, he gets to start a ministry. But oftentimes when people start that young, it locks them into being only that a child star. So they often can't be anything else. Well, that's interesting in so many different ways. On one level, sometimes they often can't be anything but a child star, which is to say it's hard for them to grow up. Uh, there are more notable examples, but the one I always think about is Alyssa Milano going off to do uh, a kind of a trashy uh, TV movie, and she was topless. And it was like, oh, Alyssa Milano, everybody's sweetheart. And it's kind of a, a clumsy attempt to go, look, I'm grown. Uh, and then from another level, there are child stars who don't necessarily want to do it anymore, but what else are they going to do? So we got a great email from longtime reader Marita, uh, who wants to talk about this topic, but she was pointing out something really interesting uh, that on another podcast, the podcast Bad With Money, uh, one of the guests was an actor who was on Freaks and Geeks. He played Neil. His name is Sam Levine. Uh, and she was talking about how uh, years after his big show, he turned to playing poker for income as he felt that a star or at least an actor people might recognize couldn't get a job at the mall. And that may sound preposterous, but it's absolutely true. If you think about actors that we have followed or known who, you know, have worked for a while and then don't, and you go, well, whatever happened to so-and-so? It is unfortunate but true that if they hope to stage a comeback, 
you have to appear to still be in the game or be hot or be, you know, available. If you're like, oh, well, I guess I'm going to go and work at DGC Accountants and your headshot on the website is, you know, hey, wasn't that that girl from the Friday night sitcom Step by Step? You've effectively said my show business career is over. And that's fine if that's what you choose, but it can be very scary for people who have only ever known this world to close that door forever. And so a lot of them do kind of want to hang on to it. Or uh, in the best scenario, they work behind the scenes because God knows they have the experience for it. And then they're doomed to going to these cons and signing headshot posters or those glossies for like $20. Well, you know, some people just tap out altogether and I think that's fine. I was joking about, uh, I was joking about the people from Step by Step, but I don't know where most of them are and I think that's probably great and they don't care. It was a thing that they did and now it's over. Uh, I think there are people that are fine with closing that chapter on their life and with only opening it when they need to. You know who comes to mind is Danica McKellar. Remember she played Winnie Cooper on The Wonder Years? Yeah, and then like she's some kind of mathematician now and she's published and she's on that list of, right? There's like this weird list of people who act but also um, are published like for academic papers. Do you know that what I'm talking about? Natalie Portman's on there. I mean, I'm going to be annoyed that Natalie Portman has published an academic paper, but that's fine. Um, but yeah, that's an interesting scenario to me because Danica McKellar, yeah, has written three or four books about sort of explaining math theorems to girls, but really anybody who wants kind of a a pop take a little bit. Uh, and, you know, she's visibly in front of the product. She is Winnie Cooper uh, for the purposes of marketing it. But I don't think she's waiting around, waiting for people at academic mathematics conferences to be like, weren't you that girl from the Wonder Years? It feels like she has moved on in her career. But it's easier said than done. It's going to kill me what this list is. I need to look it up. Keep going. Uh, you know, the one thing we haven't talked about is, oh, what can we do? Uh, uh or what can you do if your kid really wants to do this or if they're already on a show? And I think the answer is always keep things as normal as possible. Mila Kunis is always on my mind in this conversation because you and I always talk about the way she talks is the way we talk as the child of immigrants, right? She always talks about the fact that the things she did after school and the fact that she was doing this show was secondary to everything else in her family. And she's who I was thinking of when I said it would not have happened if she had, didn't happen to live in Los Angeles. Uh, so that kind of normalcy is super important. Like, be willing to walk away. The other thing is an anecdote I have to tell from, forgive me, the autobiography of Melissa Gilbert, uh, otherwise uh, known as Laura Ingalls on Little House on the Prairie, uh, but she grew up in a wealthy family. And so even though she was doing acting, first of all, as you say, she wasn't paying the rent. Uh, but second of all, and this is amazing, so I guess her family used to vacation with Michael Landon's family. Uh, so he was very wealthy and successful as well. And when they traveled, the parents sat in first class and the children 
Michael Landon's children, and Melissa Gilbert, half-pint, the star of the goddamn show, sat in coach. Elaine is actually hugging herself with joy right now. <laughs> That's so fucking immigrant. Isn't that a, but they're not even immigrants. I know, just but like... like <laughs> that's exactly well actually no it's not immigrant at all never mind immigrant parents would never pay that much for a plane ticket but if they did what i earn the money it's my money i'll sit up front that's you, right you can sit and coach in the back that's right she also talked about the fact that her mother would not pay for uh room service on the beach so i guess beach service and would pack sandwiches they were millionaires okay tell us about your list it's called the erdos bacon number so the Erdos Bacon number is a person's Erdos, oh sorry, a person's Erdos Bacon number is the sum of one's Erdos number, which measures the collaborative distance in authoring academic papers between that person and Hungarian mathematician Paul Erdos, and one's Bacon number, which represents the number of links through oh rules my in film God. by which the individual is separated from Kevin Bacon. Oh my God. I know. This is why I loved, I knew you would love this list. So, yeah, so it's, if you are a film actor slash if you've authored papers, Dana McKellar, uh, Danica McKellar, her Erdos Bacon number is six, having co-authored uh, mathematics papers as you're talking about. And again, I told you Natalie Portman is definitely on this list. Um, and Colin Firth is also on the Erdos Bacon list. If you are on the Erdos Bacon list, if you think you could be, if you were in a movie as a child, if you have gotten your PhD, please calculate and let us know. I would love to hear about this. This is one of those ongoing topics, right? There will always be child stars as long as there's showbiz. I don't know if anybody knows how to do it right, but we know more and more about how to do it wrong. And it's going to be interesting to watch it go by. And not everyone has a Britney. Ha! Fuck him. Because you know what? He would be nothing without her. Anyway, we can move on now. <laughs> um, we are moving on to Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon. So it was announced a few days ago that they will be doing a uh, premium cable series about morning TV, morning shows. Um, they are shopping it around now. Nobody is expecting it not to be bought. In fact, everybody's expecting, given the names attached to it, that it's going to result in a heated bidding war. Um, but uh, yeah, Jennifer Aniston returning to regular series television after Friends, um, a, over a decade after Friends. I mean, she's done some cameos. She did 30 Rock, right? Sure. <laughs> the disdain in that sure. Anyway, I thought of you as soon as I uh, saw this because, of course, I know you love talking about new television projects, things that are pitched. You also kind of a little bit are an expert in morning TV. Um, well, morning TV is a bit of a Trojan horse in how juicy it is. So I cannot overstate how rich and smart I think this, uh, this topic is, this show is. I agree. And especially since, you know, uh, someone had emailed me this story, uh, uh, someone I know who's also a reporter, and he was like, this is not a bad move. And I said, no, it's not a bad move, especially, I mean, they're pitching it to premium, but especially, like, can you imagine if it gets picked up by NBC around the same time that Megyn Kelly's morning show begins? This is, uh, to me, that's what this is. And apparently there have been some comparisons. We, uh, 
I've heard reports that Reese's character it may be sort of a Megyn Kelly type. Well, here's what's interesting about that is that, you know, the show itself uh, is described as being about the women of morning television, right? And uh, it's being uh, it's being written by a, you know, a former advisor to both Hillary Clinton and uh, Bill Clinton uh, and producer on House of Cards. So, you know, it seems obvious that there will be a political slant there. Uh, but it's interesting to me that you say she's going to play a Megyn Kelly type because really you'd think either of them could. In fact, my biggest eyebrow raise at this project, well, look, my biggest eyebrow raise at this project is Jennifer Aniston. As evidenced by the aforementioned, uh, sure. I, I just am annoyed by this woman on the daily. I don't think she has a modicum of the talent that she is, like that you would think is reflective of her level of success. What are you laughing at? You are at? rarely this pointed. Like when you criticize someone, you take 150 words to do it and you go in the most indirect uh, way you go from A to F to P and then back to B. So well, for you to be so direct about your feelings about Jennifer Aniston's talent or lack thereof is actually quite astonishing. Like, look, I'm not doing it in order to be uh, to pussyfoot around. Usually, I can see both the good and the bad in somebody, but I just don't get it. I think she's the worst, and I think like Reese Witherspoon is is is. What's the word here? Uh, being generous to appear in something with her because I don't feel like <laughs> you just called her a pity case. Basically, I don't feel like Reese Witherspoon needs this. So <laughs> Reese definitely does not need this. No. However, if this project had a different lineup, if it was Jennifer Aniston opposite, oh God, I don't know, Terry Hatcher. Uh, then I could be like, oh, Jennifer Aniston playing a Megyn Kelly type could be interesting. Uh, so I'm not sure who she's supposed to be in this scenario, particularly since she's way outclassed uh, talent-wise. You know, I'm not sure what this is going to look like. Having said that, maybe her playing kind of the meek lamb to the Megyn Kelly type uh, shark is is gonna be kind of the point to have her play uh, that that Rachelish pity case that we love. <laughs> I but I what I really want to get to here when I thought about this is so we are in the era of peak TV as we keep pounding that expression to the point where yes we're tired of it but it is really like a new golden age of television and we're seeing. Movie star after movie star after movie star, right? Go from film to the poor second cousin for, it was, I know you object to that. No, but why is it still a conversation then? Like what is, the, what is, okay, keep going. No, my point is, is that that's for a long time what people have felt, sure. right? Yeah. That you want to start in TV, but the end goal is always movies. And now peak TV is upon us. Right. The Emmys are getting as much campaign money as the Oscars. Yep. The Emmys are just as big as the Oscars. Finally, Duanna is vindicated. Television rises. And only now, Jennifer Aniston's like, oh, okay. I, I you know, oh, Reese did it. Nicole did it. Jessica Biel is doing it. Oh, yeah, I should go back to TV. But I'm, I'm going to do it with Reese uh, so that, like, I can, ha I can do it with a partner and, 
Like it's just, it, it's not on my ass. Well, first of all, she's stacking. Is that fair of me? Is that unfair of me? No, it's, well, look, here's the thing. First of all, she's stacking the deck because yeah, you can't fucking go wrong with Reese Witherspoon who did not need the Renaissance, but had one after she played Maddie in Big Little Lies, right? Uh, and, you know, there's another whole conversation to be had about whether this role is different enough from her Big Little Lies role or whether it dilutes the glory of that. But we'll put that on pause for a second. What happened to Jennifer Aniston in a nutshell is, yeah, sure, peak TV happened. But meanwhile, she's 49 fucking years old. There aren't movie roles for her. I know she is the masturbation material of every uh, media executive, but they still know better than to cast her in a movie as the female lead when she's almost 50. It's not happening. So Jennifer Aniston uh, is, yeah, a beneficiary of peak TV, but she's also going where the work is. And the work for women, and I'm not mad at this, and I'm not criticizing Aniston or anyone else, the work for women in nuanced roles exists in television. Hell, even Julia Roberts has done miniseries, you know, because other than playing Meryl Streep's angry daughter in August Osage County, which you can only do so often, uh, eat the fish, bitch, is still one of my favorite <laughs> all-time movie quotes. There's not a lot to do. Julia Roberts may not want to work, but Jennifer Aniston wants to work, doesn't need to work, wants to work. So yeah, you're going to go where there's actual roles for women. And I can never be mad at television for being that. I can be smug though. You were smug about Jennifer Aniston. I was smug about Justin Timberlake. We both got some smug in. What makes you most excited about this project? Well, I love morning TV drama. I think it's great that we're centering a story around two women of a certain age on TV. Is morning TV where women can get a job past 50, right? Arguably, uh, yes. And yep. you guys have heard us talk about Top of the Morning, which is the nonfiction book about uh, the morning show wars. But of course, you have to also read The News Sorority, uh, written by Sheila Weller, which talks about the careers of Diane, Diane Sawyer, Sawyer, Katie Couric. And, and Christian Amanpour, yeah. uh, which definitely delves into morning TV and the worlds therein as well. And remember, there's some Oprah in here too. Oprah also started on morning TV. So when Oprah started, um, when Oprah, before Oprah moved to Chicago, she was on morning TV in Baltimore. And uh, the dude she was working with, uh, the co-anchor, slapped her down and shut her down and took her voice all the time. But then she somehow got her own show, moved to Chicago, and we know the rest. But there's a lot of Oprah here, too. And there's something here about morning and afternoon daytime TV audiences that are actually more representative and inclusive than they're given credit for. I know that The View has become sort of a punching bag now, but you have to remember that 20 years ago when The View started, there was a woman over 60 anchoring that table. There was a blonde, sure. There was a black woman. Who, while she is a punchline of her own at times, that black woman, uh, first of all, was a lawyer. 
Uh, and second of all, since then has written a book which is itself uh, now turned into a dramatic series about that kind of a morning-ish show. And that, of course, would be Star Jones. And don't forget, Lisa Ling was an early cast member on The View, too. So you've got Lisa Ling, Asian woman, Star Jones. You've got Barbara Walters, who's who was already old then. Joy Behar was not young uh, when The View started either. So this happened in, uh, if I say 20 years ago, that means 1997, right? Jesus Christ, it was earlier than that. And I'm telling you, it was a hit right out of the gate. Yes, it was. And only maybe a decade later did that conversation about opportunities for women really hit critical mass. I mean, yes, of course, it was always simmering underneath. No, I'd say even later than that. You're you're absolutely right. It's been even later than that that we've talked about that. So listen… This could have something to do with the fact that I myself am a host of a daytime TV talk show, so certainly I am biased towards the medium, but I will say that the predecessor for the show I'm on, The Social, of course, is The View, and I'm not sure we celebrate or give it enough credit and other daytime shows that were on the networks at the time for allowing, for lack of a better word, women to be present and to be able to speak and to share their opinions. Well, it certainly doesn't happen in scripted and at night. Another way of looking at that is that it's, you know, when you were talking about Oprah, is that daytime television, which required women and maybe still requires women, some women, uh, certainly the hit morning shows like Today and so forth, required and requires women to have a cue factor, to have an appeal factor, uh, that they were the only places that women were really able to practice being broadcast journalists, right? That there were not as many seats in prime time for them. Barbara Walters has stories for all of us about how hard it was to get there. And, you know, there aren't a lot of women who have followed in those footsteps in terms of sitting at news desks uh, in the same way. So morning TV is that constant dichotomy of, well, are you appealing, but also do you know your stuff? Are you smart, but also cute? Why do you have to be both? Well, you do. Tough. This is where Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston are interesting choices because do you think they've both dealt with that over and fucking over again? Guaranteed, right? So they are able to bring something to that in terms of uh, a lived frustration, let's say. And so that I think will be very interesting. The other thing that's interesting is We've been talking about this, and I think assuming that it is set in present day, but a lot of these stories that we're talking about and reminding ourselves of seem to lend themselves to period. Uh, And I was sorry when the Amazon show Good Girls Revolt, which was based on Nora Ephron's early experiences in journalism at a newspaper, was canceled. So, you know, I hope there's an audience that finds this because there's definitely a place for lots of juicy stories. And we should mention that that show that you talked about, that Star Jones uh, wrote the book, and then it's now a TV show with um, Vanessa... Manilo? Save the best for last. Oh, Vanessa Williams. Right. Oh, my God. (laughs) So Vanessa Williams is in the lead. Um, It's Daytime Divas. 
So yes. you want to check that out. I haven't watched it yet, but um, uh, we had Vanessa Williams on the show and she was talking about some of the content. Obviously, the juiciness at the top, at the beginning of the show, is the fact that Star wrote it. So people are speculating what was the behind-the-scenes drama that led to some of these storylines. But within some of the first few episodes, it's already being addressed, like, whether or not Vanessa Williams' character got plastic surgery, who's going to out it, um, you know, the reality of being of a certain age on TV um, for those the, the kind of women who have to present a certain way. So they're already hitting some, some of those issues that we've been talking about. Yeah, this could be a whole subgenre, uh, including the bold type in terms of young women in journalism, which we talked about enjoying. Uh, so let's see how many of these we can stack up. I, I'd love to see this become an entire category of television entertainment. And maybe we should take daytime more seriously. Maybe we should uh, consult on these shows. <laughs> Call us. And finally, the part of our show where we talk about do you need to care about? This is a story you sent me, and it has all the elements of things that you love. There's a little Hamilton in here. There's definitely Broadway in here. Uh, and there's Mandy Patinkin. Who I don't know if I cared about. Uh, I have cared at times. I have cared in periods of Homeland. Do you, do I have to do the thing? Should I do the thing? Yeah, do the thing. My name is Nigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. No? Sorry. All right. What's that? What? I mean, okay, I a little bit know because of osmosis, but I didn't know. You'd, You've seen The Princess Bride. I've seen The Princess Bride in parts. It's You know when you see a movie, like when it's on... Do not cut my sound effects, Yasik. In parts? Well, yeah. Okay. Like, look. Okay, so you want the full deal? You were supposed to know that line, and I give the line, and you're like, oh, I don't know. Well, I... I don't know. I've seen... I know that, like, Columbo is reading a story to Fred Savage, <laughs> and then... <laughs> okay, I just want to mention even Yasik knows the line. Okay, I just look. There's a there's a large swath of movies that I missed. Uh, we weren't allowed to watch a lot of movies, and like my parents had different ideas about what parental guidance meant versus what it turned out to mean. So I have gaps. Okay, I know who he was. I get it. I just don't know the story. I know that the dude's name was Wesley, which made people spell Wesley wrong for a really long time. Okay. So you didn't know if you cared about Mandy Patinkin, but Homeland, and then I interjected with Homeland. Before we get to Homeland, we have to get to Princess Bride. Anyway, continue. Well, I guess the question is, uh, now that we've preambled our, our postamble, do you, did you care about Mandy Patinkin before? I... I watched Homeland for the first three seasons and then gave up on it. But my connection to Mandy Patinkin nowadays is, for some reason, he's always called out during the opening monologue for the Golden Globes. Have you noticed, <laughs> <laughs> have you noticed that? He's always shouted out. For some reason, he's in the audience at the Golden Globes and someone shouts him out. Maybe it's just a name that people like to say. It must be Mandy Patinkin. Mandy Patinkin. 
and I feel as though, yeah, maybe he was, he may be one of those guys who's worked with everybody under the sun, right? So we're talking about him for this reason. So, uh, Broadway, there's a Broadway production of Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. You may have seen a performance on the Tonys. Josh Groban was in the show uh, when it opened. Uh, and then uh, the lead in the show more recently was being played by Okriete Oak Onaudawan. Uh, and that sounds like a no-name, if you will. Uh, he is, of course, not a no-name. He originated the role of Hercules Mulligan slash James Madison in Hamilton. He's Oak. He is, if you're a Broadway fan, you know who he is. So he had the lead role. Then, I guess the show was not doing well, possibly because its title is too long to remember. And so the producers asked Mandy Patinkin to take over the lead role. And they said that they had indicated to Oak that he would be asked to come back and take over the role again. But the idea being that Mandy Patinkin was going to drum up interest and or ticket sales. So how do you feel about this, first of all? I love that we're bookmarking like sort of, it's a similar theme to Angelina Jolie. To your point about, yeah. hey, does anybody fucking care about this story if Angelina Jolie doesn't make this movie? Well, kind of, yeah. Um, except that arguably they're wrong because the people who go to Broadway on a regular basis anyway are absolutely going to be people who know about Hamilton and know the various casts and who would be interested in watching Oak, who you can hear on the Hamilton cast recording, by the way, like he's the guy, uh, play this role. But arguably, that's not enough. Arguably, you need more. So there was some backlash. So there was backlash for sure. Uh, and uh, so the I'm quoting now from the Deadline article, uh, which said, the abrupt change to Patinkin prompted disbelief and angry responses on social media from theater people and others who claimed the change was disrespectful and all too typical of the treatment of actors of color throughout the entertainment industry. Oak was not given enough time to develop an audience for the show. Uh, and we should say that he had been in the role uh, for just shy of a month. So gross, yes? Gross. It feels gross. It feels like arguably what it looks like, which is replacing an, an actor of color with an old white guy. Correct. Cut to Mandy Patinkin, uh, who tweets the following in four tweets. My understanding of the show's request that I step into the show is not as it has been portrayed, and I would never accept a role knowing it would harm another actor. I hear what the members of the community have said, and I agree with them. I am a huge fan of Oak, and I will, therefore, not be appearing in the show. Okay, so. So? Great uh, or too little too late? What do you think? Well, I just don't know how it could have been sold to him any differently. I mean, I'm sure you can hear Oak's going to leave. Oak's got to go. Can you come fill in? Uh, they also might have said, as people can, you know, turn things all the time, 
he's got some stuff, but we want to have him back in February. Uh, you know, can can we uh, can you come in and fill in in the meantime? Would it have been okay to reach out to Oak and be like, hey, I just, you know, I heard that uh, you can't do it. It's my honor to just fill and warm your seat for you for a while. You know, I don't know if that's always how it goes. Uh, The article also points out that uh, it says here, Oak's run was always planned as limited and would have ended in a few weeks. So say for the sake of argument that he was always going to do the role only through the end of September. Uh, Then they decide they're going to change him out as of August 1st, and he might come back later on, uh, assuming the show stays awake. I don't know if you always reach out to somebody whom you're replacing, or if you just hear, hey, this opened up, can you come on in? You might not have a reason to check. I mean, on face value, if all of those things lined up, and it was indeed a misrepresentation that Mandy was told one thing where it was in actual fact another, I'm like, yeah, it's a great thing for him to have done. I think going forward, does it present an interesting situation where if you are the old white guy and you're taking away or stepping into a role that was supposed to have been for a person of color, now I know this is an exceptional scenario given that Josh Groban was the originator of the role, yes? Yes, yeah. And then Josh Groban was replaced by Oak? Yes. And then Mandy Patinkin was replacing Oak. Um, But going forward, if you're going to take this as an example, if you are now one of those white actors and Mandy Patinkin has opportunity after opportunity after, after opportunity, does this become something that gives you pause? Yeah. And, you know, maybe it should. One of the things that's interesting is that they talked about, uh, it seems like they've almost taken a page from Hamilton here in that the casting really has seemed up to this point to be blind, uh, colorblind in the best sense of the word. Uh, So as we said, uh, you know, Josh Groban followed by Oak, followed by uh, Mandy Patinkin, now not followed by Mandy Patinkin. Uh, and the role of Natasha originated off-Broadway by Philippa Sue, who, of course, originated the role of Eliza in Hamilton, has been played on Broadway from the beginning by Tony nominee Danae Benton, an African-American actress. And so some people think they were actually maybe feeling like they were insulated from any criticisms of of you know, being, of not being sensitive. And Janae Benton won the Tony, right? For newcomer or featured or whatever? I believe she did, yeah. yeah. Um, So there is an update, uh, and I don't know how it makes us feel about Mandy, but here we have it for what it's worth. The producers of The Great Comet have released the following statement. As part of our sincere efforts to keep Comet running for the benefit of its cast, creative team, crew, investors, and everyone else involved, we arranged for Mandy Patinkin to play Pierre. However, we had the wrong impression of how Oak felt about the casting announcement and how it would be received by members of the theater community, which we appreciate is deeply invested in the success of actors of color, as are we, and to whom we are grateful for bringing this to our attention. We regret our mistake deeply and wish to express our apologies to everyone who felt hurt and betrayed by these actions. End quote. 
What I think is the great star of this story is Broadway itself. We have talked a lot on this show about the responsibility of actors, a community of actors to step forward and be like, hey, I don't want to be part of a community that espouses these values or doesn't espouse these values. Or doesn't pay women and men the same. That's or right. Or who make, you know, projects that aren't as uh, forward thinking as they could be. And I think the best example or the first example that popped to mind is Jeremy Renner, who last year when asked about Jennifer Lawrence's essay in Lenny about equal pay on American Hustle, his first answer, which he had to clarify later, was, that's not my job. Broadway doesn't come out with a statement saying, that's not my job. When the actors and the family of Broadway heard about this situation, internally they rose up. It didn't require a Twitter, it didn't require a Twitter campaign or the fans to find out about it. Broadway itself criticized Broadway. And I feel like, and you've talked about it so many times, that Broadway and that community has been leaps and bounds. In many ways, just like daytime TV and the representation of women, has always been leaps and bounds ahead of its artistic counterpoints in television and in film. And this is yet another example where they pointed the fingers at themselves and called out one of their peers, one of their shows, for falling short. That is not Jeremy Renner. And for every Jeremy Renner, there are six more Jeremy Renners in the business. They just weren't as stupid as to give an interview saying that's not my job. But they're silent and doing nothing. Absolutely. And, you know, I think there's two, uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, uh, Broadway is a community, not just because it's a community, but because nobody does Broadway to get rich. It is, we've talked before about theater salaries. Even if you have the lead in the biggest show going, you are not getting rich. You may become famous and therefore get opportunities and then become rich, but you really are doing it for the love of the show. So I really think that bonds people together. The second thing that I want to point out is that you keep saying Broadway itself, and I don't disagree with that term at all, but I feel like it's important to point out that in a different way from film and television, Broadway and that community actually includes the audience in a way that it doesn't uh, for film or TV or even music. Uh, you know, live theater, if it happens in a forest, does it really happen, right? Like Broadway happens for the people who are there to see it and who continue to show up and participate in the live event that is the performance. So I think when you say Broadway holds itself to a higher standard and Broadway criticized their own, I do think that includes the audience, uh, often who are many of them actors themselves and, and fans of each other's shows. So I think that's a really interesting, important, and yeah, exciting dynamic. It is. And I, you know, given that example, that's why this story excited me. You know, Mandy, in the end, sure, did the right thing, but it really was a reflection of how true to the pursuit of equality Broadway is and probably has been for a long time. Well, can be, right? Like yeah. there are still places where maybe it doesn't get it right. But yes, where uh, how committed it can be. Now, I know you don't love uh, talking about how great apologies are. 
like that they almost shouldn't be great because they're apologies, right? You fucked up so you don't get a pat on the back. However, that's a pretty complete apology that does not seek to excuse itself. Yes? Yes. It's it's a good apology. And what I like about this example is, well, I'm putting down this job. This job is not worth it. Well, Mandy Patinkin is putting down the job, but the producers also said, we were wrong. We misinterpreted and or I think is probably implicit there, misportrayed. And that was a bad thing that we did. Um, on that level, I might disagree with you. I, I, I think the more accurate description and word of that is we underestimated. And if you want to apologize for underestimating the, um, the character and the integrity of the fans and the community, sure. But given that, the underestimation to begin with is probably a greater crime that an apology won't fix. You know, I I hear you. Uh, to me, the acknowledgement of how too far they went is in the word betrayed. They don't just say to anyone who was upset by this, but they use the word betrayed, understanding exactly the people who feel as though they were undercut or not represented in this situation, both the actors and the audiences. And so, you know, I think that's, they're paying attention. They don't need to be patted on the back for having done something stupid and apologized, but it tells me they're paying attention and not just giving a lip service apology. Well, there you go. I think that if there's anything to be taken away from it, it's that they're paying attention as opposed to subverting, which is what I still think Hollywood is doing. Agreed. Um, and so, sure, in that respect, um, I appreciate that they're paying attention and hoping, we're hoping then that they can do the right thing because I certainly don't have the same hope for Hollywood right now at this moment. You know, I've been accused of giving a begrudging sure on this show, but that was yours just there. That was your begrudging sure. <laughs> and on that note, thank you so much for your emails and your tweets. As I said earlier, you informed these discussions and we had a full discussion, a couple of them, directly because of your email. So please continue to send us your emails, your thoughts, um, your suggestions. We're so happy again that you're so into this podcast. And we have homework for you. Your homework is to watch The Incredible Jessica James on Netflix starring The Incredible Jessica Williams. We will be talking about her on the next podcast, which will not be next week. We are both traveling. So we're taking a one-week break. We'll be back the week after. And on the agenda, Jessica Williams. If you want extra credit, you can Google Jessica Williams plus J.K. Rowling. Uh, I will try to cover more than just that, but it's entirely possible that will be the entire conversation. So until next time, leave us your comments on iTunes and Google Play. Subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play. Work hard. Bye. Bye.
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.